This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Okay, so we'll do our panel on challenging cases in medical dermatology. Um, I'm your host, you've seen me before, I'm your medical director, Ted Rosen, and we have Alan Rook, we have Amit Pandey and Kirk Galtier here. This is a very good panel. People will either discuss a case or sort of a general concept, perhaps an extension of previous discussions, but I think everybody will learn something from every speaker. Please do send in your questions, but we'll do them all at the end to make sure that one person doesn't have a whole lot of questions and then everybody else's time is shortened. So we only have about 15 minutes a person. I'm gonna try and take less so we leave some time for the next speakers. So I'm gonna give you a case of an elusive granuloma. And if you haven't seen this, you will. Some point in time, I guarantee you will. And you can remember, Uncle Teddy told you about it. Just put it back there. So this is a 63-year-old lung transplant patient. He's been doing fine for five years. Uh, initially, he had a bout of aspergillosis, which was uh, pretty bad, but he was treated with appropriate antifungals. There's no evidence of uh, aspergillus left. He's fine. He's on a dosage of prednisone, mycophenolate, and sirolimus. That's his anti-rejection regimen. And then he has a one-month history and was sent from the transplant clinic where he's followed to dermatology for an asymptomatic facial lesion that at the time they put in the consult was a one-by-one-centimeter plaque on the cheek. It's still about one-by-one. One. I'm going to show you a picture in a second. But you'll see a little bit underneath that plaque indicating this is starting to extend a little bit. He came in to dermatology. We did three different small biopsies one from the top, two from the top, and one from the bottom part, and they all showed granuloma. Well, the guy's got a history of aspergillus, it's granuloma, let's do cultures and special stains, except everything was negative. Culture, special stains negative for bacteria, mycobacteria, which also could cause a granuloma, especially immunocompromised or immunosuppressed patient, and fungi. And that's what he looks like. And, you know, it doesn't look terrible, but it doesn't look exactly great, and I wouldn't want this on my face either. Totally asymptomatic, and we're not sure what to do. So here's what happens. It keeps getting larger. And then he gets submandibular adenopathy. Now, that's concerning, right? He's a transplant patient, multi-agent suppressive therapy to prevent rejection. You start worrying about what infection did we miss, or is this cancer, or what the heck's going on, except just showed granuloma. So let's start all over again. Let's repeat the biopsy. Now we'll not only biopsy the skin, we'll biopsy the node. And it all was non-caseating granulomas, stains, cultures, immunohistochemistry now. So that's addition of special reagents that can identify infectious organisms, can be in situ hybridization, uh, can be PCR, but we did immunohistochemistry and it doesn't show anything. 
and it just keeps getting bigger. And now here's what he looks like. Remember what he started like. And you can even see his node there bulging out from under his mandible. So this is now a real problem. So let's go on with what happens. So we do a new biopsy. The poor guy, I mean, he was very nice, but he said, another biopsy? Pretty soon, why don't you just biopsy the whole thing away? But we did a biopsy. And now it still shows uh, some granulomas, but there's some areas that are forming germinal centers. There's a dense, in addition to the granulomas, a very dense lymphohistiocytic infiltrate. And I'll show you a picture in a second that extends all the way from the epidermis all the way through the fat. It's just crammed. And not only that, unlike all his previous biopsies, we now have some atypical-looking cells. And when I show you the histology, you'll immediately recognize you don't have to be a pathologist to say, wow, that's pretty interesting. And a bunch of plasma cells, which hadn't been present before. So as all his previous biopsies were pretty bland-looking, non-caseating granulomas, but now the whole look of it has changed. And it looks like there's a B-cell lineage and macrophage involvement based on new immunohistochemical stains. Now, without quite going into the diagnosis just yet, we also did in situ hybridization for Epstein-Barr virus, and those two things were positive, the LMP, which is latent membrane protein. You see this both in active and as well as latent Epstein-Barr virus infection, but it's also an oncoprotein. So when that is being elaborated by Epstein-Barr virus, it tends to be associated with malignancies. And the EBER, which is Epstein-Barr-induced or, or elicited uh, RNA, is usually in seen in active infection. So now whatever this is, is Epstein-Barr virus related because we've got it on immunohistochemistry. And here's what his biopsy looked like. That's epidermis all the way down through and under fat. Just one mass of cells. And that's what it looks like. And again, you don't have to be a histopathologist to look at that and see there are some really large, ugly-looking cells. There are a couple multinucleated giant cells. You can pick out plasma cells in there. So yes, he still had some well-formed granulomata, but then he has all this. And here's the special stain looking for Epstein-Barr, and you can see all those brown staining cells. This is clearly related to Epstein-Barr virus. So here's the diagnosis, and this is what you're going to take home out of this. This is called post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder. That's a mouthful. But it's a broad spectrum of presentations. It can be largely plasma cells. It can be B-related cells, T cells sometimes. But in the early stages of this, granulomata are common. And of course, because this isn't bacterial, mycobacterial, or fungal, all efforts to culture or stain or find by PCR or immunohistochemistry or in situ hybridization looking for mycobacteria and fungi are going to be negative because it has nothing to do with that. This is primarily an Epstein-Barr-related infection 
and then they get B-cell-derived tumors. Do you see this often? Not frequently, but remember, he's a lung transplant. So that's 2 to 10% of lung and heart transplants, less frequently in kidney and liver transplants because they tend to be on a little less severe a regimen of immunosuppression. There are about 40 cases now of this disorder, which was primarily skin-focused as opposed to largely lymph node-focused with maybe or maybe not any skin involvement at all. But this gentleman presented with a, an expanding cutaneous lesion. It meets all the criteria. It's just a little unusual in its progression. And this does affect the prognosis of the patient because it worsens their five-year survival, particularly in lung transplant patients, where that should be above 90%. It falls to about two-thirds. So this is a serious condition. Oven by itself, he looks horrible. He's got a lymph node. It's getting bigger. But the larger picture is this is now threatening his existence. What's the therapy? If everything else fails, it's administration of rituximab, which you know is usually used for B-cell-derived sort of malignancies. But the first step is always to reduce the immunosuppression, since this appears to be Epstein-Barr virus-induced in the setting of significant immunosuppression. So that's what was done to him. His prednisone and mycophenolate were both discontinued, and his serolimus dose was decreased rather markedly. Nothing else was done, and that's what he looked like. That's really a nice result. His transplant stayed fine on reduced immunosuppression. I think there's a subliminal message in that, which really doesn't affect us directly in that we're not taking care of the transplants, but I think there's often a point where the immunosuppression anti-rejection regimen could actually be decreased, and it isn't, because everybody's comfortable, the patient's doing well, and you don't want to rock the boat. But obviously, he did just fine with that. So can you prevent this? Is there anything to predict it or prevent it? It's more common in kids, actually, than adults, but it certainly can appear in adults. And if the recipient who's getting the transplant is Epstein-Barr seronegative, then, you know, he's sort of a sitting duck for this. Drugs, we don't exactly know. There's, there are contradictory statements in the literature as to which drugs are most responsible for this. The general consensus is that tacrolimus, serolimus, and azathioprine are mostly responsible pretty much in that order, although other people might reverse one or two of those, but they're much more responsible than mycophenolate mofetil. It's interesting that the mycophenolate and the prednisone were stopped in this patient. The serolimus was continued. But the bottom line is all drugs, all the anti-rejection meds should be decreased and, if possible, discontinued. That's the first step in treating this. Can you modify, can you monitor Epstein-Barr viremia in a sense? Um, we're not exactly sure how, we don't know how often. 
what would you do if suddenly that showed up and they had no lesions or were asymptomatic? Would you give antiviral drugs? Would you give rituxan as a prophylactic medication when no symptoms are present, no lesions? Nobody really knows that. So this is an entity that occurs infrequently, but most frequently with lung and heart transplants. It may present with a proliferative lesion on the skin, which may take some time to diagnose. Remember, it's almost always Epstein-Barr virus related, and there are immunohistochemical stains for that, so you can find the organism, and it's a clinical pathologic immunologic correlation that really makes this diagnosis. And the treatment of choice is to reduce the etiologic immunosuppression or anti-rejection medication. So I hope you've enjoyed that case. I think there's a message there. It's a rare entity, but if you're ever confronted with this, you heard it from me first. Thank you very much. I'll turn the podium over to Dr. Rook. Thank you, Ted. Well, for those of you who heard my talk yesterday on cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, you should be primed for this presentation, and you should know how to proceed. So I'm going to show you a series of cases. We'll talk about the differential diagnosis and what not to miss. Obviously, you do not want to miss cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So here's a patient who was presented uh, last year at our Grand Rounds uh, with uh, erythroderma diagnosed as eczema because of uh, a biopsy that did not show the characteristic findings of CTCL. It showed spongiotic dermatitis. He was poorly responsive to both topical and systemic steroids. And I walked in to see him at our grand rounds, and I stuck my hand in his axilla, and he had a big bulky lymph node. Yeah. So uh, I doubted that he had uh, eczematous dermatitis. You can get small lymph nodes with eczematous dermatitis, but not a big bulky lymph node. Uh, uh, this gentleman is now in clinical remission thanks to the correct diagnosis. Um, here is his arm. Uh, this gentleman wound up having circulating malignant T cells, which facilitated the diagnosis, and uh, a positive PET-CT scan. Uh, this was his biopsy, which did not show the characteristic changes. It showed uh, a patchy lymphocytic infiltrate in the papillary dermis. Uh, there was virtually, uh, min there was minimal epidermotropism, which you look for characteristically. And there were eosinophils. So keep in mind that eosinophils in the biopsy can be a hallmark, particularly of erythrodermic cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Here is another gentleman who presented to our department in 1985 with the diagnosis of erythrodermic psoriasis. He had failed low-dose methotrexate, he had failed oral retinoids, and he was sent to us for further workup. You'll appreciate his ectropion. The vast majority of cases of erythroderma and ectropion, the, uh, the, the ocular changes, uh, are associated with erythrodermic cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Uh, occasionally, I've seen it with PRP. Occasionally, I've seen it with uh, an overwhelming contact dermatitis. But it's almost always characteristic of erythrodermic cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. These were his hands. 
This was biopsy. It looked like a psoriasiform dermatitis. He too was leukemic. On flow cytometry, he had abnormal circulating T cells in his peripheral blood, characteristic of cutaneous T cell lymphoma. Here's a gentleman who was referred to my practice with the diagnosis of uh, pityriasis rubra pilaris. You'll notice the orange rash. Uh, he did have skip points on his skin, typical of PRP. He had this almost confluent uh, scaling of the palms and soles, quite characteristic clinically of PRP. Uh, he did not have PRP. Here's a gentleman who was presented to me in residence clinic. He had the acute onset of this papular erythroderma. You could run your hands across his skin and feel that it was studded with papules. He had started a new medication two weeks before presentation, uh, and I, he was presented to me as a drug rash. Uh, he's another one who I stuck my hand in his axilla, and he had gigantic lymph nodes, not typical of a drug rash. So the most common uh, associated causes are the one you don't want to miss is at the top of the list. And I will touch upon this, but uh, it consistent with what you heard uh, uh, regarding anti-TNF agents and Embrel. They can be associated with lymphoma, but if you give those to a patient who you think has psoriasis, but they really have lymphoma, it's like taking a bottle of gasoline and pouring it on the fire. They will progress. So you better be sure of the diagnosis before you use an anti-TNF agent for a patient who's erythrodermic. But the other causes are psoriasis, PRP, atopic dermatitis. Those are the more common causes. The less common are uh, adult T-cell leukemia, which can mimic CTCL. It's basically CTCL in association with HTLV-1 retroviral infection medication hypersensitivity, extensive contact dermatitis, bolus pemphigoid, and I have seen cases that suddenly erupt in widespread bulla and Norwegian scabies. Biopsy, more than one biopsy is necessary to do histology, immunohistochemistry, and T cell receptor gene rearrangement. Unfortunately, in more than 50% of cases, the biopsy is not characteristic of CTCL. It just shows a patchy, patchy papillary dermal infiltrate. In most cases of mycosis fungoides restricted to the skin, you will see epidermotropism. Not so with erythroderma. Uh, and I showed you Scott Floral's series of uh, slides yesterday. The characteristic findings are uh, spread of uh, lymphocytes in the epidermis, these Pautrier's microabscesses, the sentinel sign with uh, lymphocytes lining up at the dermal-epidermal junction, quite characteristic. Those cells are recruited there, normal skin. Uh, this is what you see more often with Cesare syndrome or the erythrodermic CTCL. You see this patchy lymphocytic infiltrate often admixed with eosinophils. So there's a high frequency of non-diagnostic histology, uh, and there have been numerous publications in that regard. Gene rearrangements. Again, you can see a dominant clone with autoimmune disease. 
so if you see a matching clone in the skin and the blood, or matching clones in the skin from two separate biopsies, that's quite characteristic of CTCL. And uh, I showed you that yesterday. Flow cytometry, uh, this is absolutely critical because in 90% or more of erythrodermic CTCL, these patients are leukemic, and you will see this abnormal uh, uh, phenotype uh, expressed in the peripheral blood, uh, uh, most typically of loss of CD26 on the CD4 T cell. And 90% or more erythrodermic CTCL patients have these cells in the blood. You want to do flow cytometry and look for CD4 positive, CD26 negative T cells greater than 20%. You can uh, occasionally see loss of other T cell markers, CD2, CD3, CD4, CD5. And T cell receptor gene rearrangement uh, in this new version, high throughput T cell receptor sequencing, will eventually, when it becomes more available to all of us, will be uh, extremely useful, and the so-called CDR3 region of the T-cell receptor is essentially the fingerprint of the T-cell receptor. And so what this is is a PCR version of the CDR3 uh, region. Uh, it is very sensitive, uh, and it will enhance specificity uh, of diagnosis. So what did this patient have? Well, that was his biopsy. You could see the dense papillary dermal infiltrate with significant epidermotropism. He had CTCL. He had markedly increased numbers of CD26 negative T cells. Uh, this is what he looks like now. He had a uh, uh, prolonged remission in response to our therapeutic cocktail, which I will show you in a moment. Uh, this gentleman turned out to have these cells in the blood and these so-called flower cells, these are T cells, are quite characteristic of HTLV-1 infection. And so he had adult T cell leukemia. And although he initially had a complete response to interferon and targretin, uh, he became resistant after about six months and unfortunately had a fatal outcome. So he had an abnormal flow cytometry at, uh, at baseline. This gentleman did not have psoriasis. He had an abnormal flow cytometry with 25% of lymphocytes, uh, losing CD7. This is, he had a complete response to photophoresis monotherapy with the first device uh, and was in remission for 13 years. So you want to do a good clinical evaluation, feel lymph nodes, obtain more than one biopsy, and most importantly, perform flow cytometry. Uh, you can see the long list of therapies. And uh, what treatments do you not want to use in these patients? At the bottom of the list, methotrexate can be helpful for patients unresponsive to immune potentiating therapies. You do not want to give them any other immune suppressants. Uh, they can be lethal for these patients. It's responsive to immune potentiation, so we like to use interferons, targretin, photophoresis, occasionally PUVA, and uh, not infrequently total skin electron beam 
and we could get three-quarters of these patients significantly better and a third of them into remission. So that's the slide I showed you yesterday. Uh, and that is it. Okay, now for something completely different. Um, once again, I want to thank Ted and SDPA for inviting me to speak to you all. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to give you a short case that illustrates um, <clears throat> an example of a patient that a lot of dermatologists ask me about um, how to handle such a patient. So the patient is a 53-year-old Latin American female. She's had vitiligo for 30 years. She's had it for a long time. The lesions started on their hands and feet and slowly spread to the trunk. It turns out that hands is the most common starting location for vitiligo in adults, and the face is the most common starting location for vitiligo in children. <clears throat> and she was okay with that. She learned to live with that on her hands and feet, and the trunk was covered. But then it started spreading rapidly and went to the face. And for some reason, the, well, you can imagine why. Her face and neck really bothered her when the lesion started to appear uh, there. She does have a history of thyroid disease. She's on thyroid supplementation. She has used topicals in the past. It was unclear which topicals she had been on. But uh, she really didn't improve with those topicals. She lives in a small town two hours south of San Antonio. Uh, it is nowhere near phototherapy facilities. And on examination, she had severe depigmentation covering over 50% of her body surface area. So you, you can see that her chin is completely depigmented on the lower aspect here around her nose. She has it on the lateral aspect uh, by her eyes. She has it on her eyelids. Almost her entire forehead is white. Um, you can see around the ears, on the neck. She has involvement of the upper chest, and if you were at my lecture on Thursday, you will recognize a, a sign here. Here, this lighter brown area, and then if you were at my lecture, you will recognize a sign here, those tiny white dots. <clears throat> and I'll talk about that in a minute and ponder that. Here's some more of those tiny white dots. And you can see she has complete depigmentation of her axilla. She has almost complete depigmentation of her abdomen. Here you can see the tiny white dots. It looks like something's just chewing away at the skin pigment, um, slowly taking uh, little chunks out. And it's making almost a reticulated area, but these telltale little white dots are here. And you can see the white dots here as well. On the inside, the volar aspect of her arm where she does not get sun exposure, she has uh, a lot of involvement. And this is her thigh where she has um, the small white uh, lesions coming up. Almost complete involvement of her hands, feet, and her shins as well. So this is a tough case, right? Um, what are you going to do? Are you just going to throw your hands up in the air and say, I'm sorry, but uh, you have such severe vitiligo and um, it looks like it's spreading. I'm not sure if there's anything I can do for it. Um, and I'm not sure if we can get your color back. And that's very typical of the response that we in dermatology give to these patients. 
So she does have confetti-like depigmentation, and if you remember from three days ago, that is the sign of the most rapidly evolving uh, vitiligo. She has trichrome lesions, and if you biopsy one of those light brown areas, you will see hundreds of CD8-positive T cells that are attacking and secreting interferon gamma and killing the melanocytes. She has that history of rapidly advancing disease. You take out your dermatoscope and you look at all the white areas and you're surprised when you find out that her vellus hairs are actually black. And so it gives you a little hope that could there be some hope in this patient? Could I possibly stimulate repigmentation? And then you remember the two pillars of therapy I talked about on Thursday. Vitiligo is caused by an inflammatory infiltrate of CD8-positive T cells and lack of melanocytes. So your two pillars are to remove those cells and then to stimulate melanocyte proliferation, melanin production. Here are those CD8-positive T cells again, and you can see that they're right up against the epidermis, and they are killing the melanocytes right there. And here is the normal skin. Here's the normal skin, and here's that confetti-like lesion from here to here. Her skin's supposed to be brown like this. There's total absence of brown color here because of these inflammatory cells that are attacking the epidermis. So your goal is to fill in those areas with melanocytes, but first you have to remove those cells. First you have to remove those uh, CD8-positive T cells. So typically we'll use topicals such as immunomodulators. You can use tacrolimus, primacrolimus. They tend to be um, weak to moderately effective in removing those cells. Mid-potency and especially high-potency corticosteroids seem to work better. You can use oral corticosteroids for a period of time to try to suppress the immune uh, attack to the skin. Dexamethasone is the most published uh, form, and I'll talk to you about the dose. Um, actually, you, you heard about it on Thursday. I'll show you what we did here. And prednisone can also be used. And then antioxidants, um, because of the trigger and the heat shock protein that is triggered when you have trauma or a chemical or a sunburn to the skin, which starts the innate immune system. So you want to have an antioxidant to help with the reactive oxygen species. Phototherapy, three times weekly, extra to hands and feet because they tend to be resistant. Uh, in office is how we do it in most of our patients, but she lives two hours south of San Antonio in a small town, and what are you gonna do there? Is home therapy a viable option? Can it really be done? Well, home phototherapy actually is something that we have given to 450 patients in Dallas. I live in Texas. It's a big old state. We got folks living in really small towns, and they can't come to my center three times a week. So you can get these units, um, and they may seem expensive, $2,400 up to $4,600. Various companies make them. But they're actually fairly uh, uh, small when you close them the ca in the cab cabinet-like uh, machine. And they're easy to set up and easy to operate. Also, price-wise, um, they're actually quite cost-efficient. I looked at 12 patients. I looked at my average reimbursement per visit, um, per treatment. And I multiplied it uh, by, by uh, 50. Um, I'm sorry, 150, because, you know, and in 50 weeks or 52 weeks of the year, the patient's going to come in three, three times a week, right? So if you look at my reimbursement over one year, it's $23,600. But if the insurance company would just simply buy a unit, within three months, they are saving money 
and the patient is saving a whole lot of hassle. Um, it's more convenient. Um, it actually, we've done a study showing that it's just as effective and safety is also, is also equal. So what did we do? We d decided to use clobetasol cream once a day rather than twice a day to try to uh, avoid toxicity. We gave her a break on Saturday and Sunday. And so that's based on an article out of Europe which showed that um, uh, Monday through Friday once a day um, and then Saturday, Sunday off seems to uh, avoid side effects like thinning of the skin and acne in vitiligo patients. We tried to focus on visible locations like the face, neck, arms, and legs, um, and of course avoid the eyelids. And in order to try to limit the use of clobetasol, we did not use more than 30 grams per week. So that's not going to cover her body uh, completely, but we wanted to use the area, apply to the areas that were visible. We then put her on oral dexamethasone, and you remember that uh, study I showed you on Thursday, 2.5 milligrams of what they use. I use 4 milligrams. It's a very convenient form in the United States, 4 milligrams Saturday morning, 4 milligrams Sunday morning. And I warned her about insomnia. I warned her about weight gain. I said, if you gain more than 5 pounds, please call me. If the insomnia gets severe, please call me. And if you have emotional ability, that's you know, a problem. Um, she or her husband can call me on that one. I also put uh, vitamin C, E, and alpha lipoic acid over 100 milligrams a day. We then sent the home phototherapy unit prescription to the phototherapy supplier. We had to do a letter of necessity saying this is a disfiguring disease. This is, a, uh, this is an accepted treatment for vitiligo. Please, please purchase it for them. And we gave detailed instructions to the patient. We just do seconds, start with 20 seconds, increase by 15% per treatment. We actually have a chart with the actual seconds and minutes. We give extra to the hands and feet. She puts, after she gets her full body treatment, front and back, she puts on a sweatshirt, sweatpants, and a pillowcase, and she gives herself extra treatments on her hands and feet. Call for any problems. So the home phototherapy unit was delivered within three weeks. She calls several times for questions and guidance. Um, and at the three-month visit, all signs of activity were gone. She was improving by 25%. Remember that chart I showed you on Thursday? 25% by three months, 50% by six months, 75% by nine months. She came back after three months. All her confetti lesions and trichrome were gone, so I knew, I knew it was time for me to stop the dexamethasone. I felt I had cleared out those cells. We continued the phototherapy, clobetasol to resistant areas only, 50% better at seven months, 75% better at 11 months. I just saw her last month, and she went from 60% involvement to 8% involvement. Here she is at seven months. She's repigmented her nose, her chin. She has a little bit on her upper lip and her eyelids. You can see the hundreds of dots coming in from those tiny black vellus hairs that I saw with my dermatoscope at her first visit. You can see she still has it in her axilla. She has hundreds of dots coming up in her, on her lower back. You can see even her abdomen, which was completely white, is starting to show dots, and her thigh is filling in nicely. Even the back of her thigh, where she had the Kebner phenomenon due to sitting and causing a lot of white areas, areas you can see that's getting better. And I did not give her much hope on her hands and feet, but typically it does go to the MCP joint. It usually does not repigment the MCP joint and distally. She's getting some on her shins. She comes back at 17 months. She has incredible repigmentation of her chest. Her face is almost completely repigmented except for her eyelids. 
You can see even her axilla, which were totally, completely depigmented, are now starting to repigment. Her back is completely repigmented. Even the abdomen, which was 100% white, is now moving towards getting repigmentation and her lower back. Her hands have filled in close to the MCP joint, and now her legs are uh, much, more, uh, much more pigmented. Her feet still have um, the uh, depigmentation, but you know, now she can, her clothing options are, are better now that she has uh, the, this uh, repigmentation going on. So this is a real world example of patients I see every single week from actually all over um, uh, the United States now. And I think this is something that can be done. When you see these patients, uh, if they don't have contraindications, uh, aggressive treatment early on, Combination treatment is ideal. Set those expectations. Uh, she, I think, is happy because I told her this is not gonna be overnight. You need to hang in there. And you can see that she's been doing this for 23 months. Provide guidance and support. Monitor the disease with images at each visit so that she can see how much she's improving and you can. Home phototherapy is convenient, effective, and safe. And the patient and dermatology staff really have to have this partnership uh, for a successful outcome. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Are y'all ready to have some fun? Okay. Uh, I wanted to say one thing about uh, Uncle Teddy's patient. I had one of those also. And I probably don't need to bend over. Um, my pathologist called me and said, hey, I don't know what this is. I thought it was a DFSP, and I did a big punch in the middle. Uh, and he called me and says, you know, just a bunch of granuloma formation here. What is this? What is this? And uh, he had been on uh, the phone with their oncologist and, you know, couldn't kind of figure out what was going on. It was a post-transplant patient also. And he got really, really mad at me because I did not tell him that the patient was immunosuppressed. He said, I could have nailed that right then if he would have told me it was immunosuppressed with the Epstein-Barr virus. So just a little tip. Write a note to the pathologist whenever you're sending a little, you know, your, your piece of tissue in. If there's immunosuppression, it can really help them out. Uh, my name is Kurt Gaudier from Tyler, Texas. U.S. Dermatology Partners. We're now the third largest dermatology practice, I believe, in the United States. It means nothing to me. It just means that maybe if I lose my job here, I can, uh, it's going to be harder to find another one. I don't know. And I, this is my picture. I thought you were going to show yours, too. No, oh, yeah. You know, I was really, I got to say, I was really proud of my little painting last night until I walked around and started looking at everybody else's and I was like, holy crap, there's some really talented people in our group. I mean, the paintings were uh, really fantastic. That, that, was, that was a good time. All right. Today we're going to talk about a difficult case. It's a 29-year-old female referred to our clinic. Painful, itchy, red, blistering, swollen rash, tender to the touch. Been there for about five days. She had a history of some mild chills, fever for a few days, no recent infections though, no new medications. Said she had some abdominal pain, maybe it was gas, it went away. She's been treating with mupirocin because that's what you do whenever you have some kind of little topical rash, right? First day, first visit. She saw yesterday, saw her PCP, who drew some labs. She's got a history of Crohn's disease, partial colectomy with a J pouch. Does anybody know what J pouch is where they take off part of your colon and they turn the Oh, part of your colon left just to give you some form of a rectum. It's a really pretty neat procedure. Married, non-smoker, homemaker. She's on ibuprofen for some joint pain, Lamotil, Maxol for headaches, allergic to adhesives and latex. Vital signs, pretty normal, right? No fever. 
So we called our PCP, and he said, yeah, I got a CBC, ANA, SED rate, F, you know, RF factor, UA, ASO, all the things that they typically do. And then everything was negative. She just settled trace uh, blood in her urine. The issue is tissue. That's what we're told, right? Got to send in a piece of tissue to figure it out. So we did a, this is a pretty gnarly looking thing here. I mean, we've got all this necrotic tissue and vascular changes. You know, so we sent in a, you know, a little slice for H&E and immunofluorescence also. Little lesion here on her wrist. Another, I don't know if you can appreciate the kind of vesicle down there on her, uh, close to her wrist, ankle. So we thought, okay, maybe vasculitis. We're gonna go ahead and go ahead and just, you know, do a little vasculitis panel, CMP, anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies. Hepatitis panel, complement, got the biopsies. We'll put her on prednisone, right? That's what you're gonna do. Little prednisone taper over 20 days. Told her to stop the ibuprofen, the you know, anti-inflammatory effect's gonna handle it. Come back in a couple of days and we'll repeat that UA and see how you do. So in two days she came back, she was stable, no fever, no abdominal pain, no new lesions or symptoms, that's great. And so what do we do? Well, we don't do mupiracin, we do triamcinolone. Yeah, start putting this on everything, right? And we say, let's call your GI doc because you've got a history of Crohn's, let's see if they've got anything. And her UA was normal this time. Third visit, day seven, getting worse. We're not helping, rash is spreading. She didn't decrease her prednisone taper. She's familiar with prednisone with history of Crohn's. She's taken it before. She's still on 60 milligrams a day. We talked to her gastroenterologist said, yeah, I bet it's the Crohn's. But, you know, I'll, uh, I'll work her in next week sometime. See if we can, you know, maybe you can start some Dapsone if the prednisone isn't helping. And we got our labs and biopsy back. All our labs are normal. Until, until, doesn't this frustrate you guys too when you get like this little bit of BUN or little, you know, a little something low and you're kind of like, God, does that mean anything? Do I need to research that? <sighs> and uh, everything here was fine. Oh, God, no, her hepatitis. Oh, she might have hepatitis. It's 33, <laughs> but it's okay. Compliment was okay. If we were expecting some kind of uh, urticarial vasculitis or uh, uh, lupus vasculitis that should have been low. This is probably an acute phase reactant with the C3. It's a, you should see a hypocomplementemia for most vasculitis that we're looking for. And here's our biopsy back, leukocytoclastic vasculitis. Nobody likes to see that. 50% infection, drugs, cocaine, the other 50%, who knows? I don't know. More lesions popping up, okay? This is what, day seven, I think? Yeah, a little thing down here on her finger. She's not a happy camper, although she has pretty toes. <laughs> New lesions on the other foot. So what is Crohn's disease, right? Maybe you were thinking that. Rare chronic inflammatory bowel disease from mouth to anus, abdominal pain, bloody diarrhea, weight loss, anemia, fatigue. May have arthritis. Okay, that fits. Pyoderma, yeah, that's not what we got on the biopsy. Erythronodosum, we didn't really see any of that. These people are at higher risk for colon cancer. And if you smoke, you've got twice the risk for developing this. What do you get if you smoke? What, what, uh, Uncle Teddy gave us a lecture in Austin, I think, and he said smoking decreases one thing. You remember, does anybody remember what that is? Aphthous ulcers, okay? Uh, I think ulcerative colitis, doesn't it decrease the chance of that also? I believe, yeah. So, but don't smoke, okay. So, now, you've had people referred to you before for Crohn's disease and getting some nodules or getting some little lesions. 
So it's just a hunch without a punch, right? Man, I just did a shave. Maybe I should have got a deeper section. But here's another patient that you saw that had a history of Crohn's. Lesion up there on the neck. Ooh, big juicy thing on the, on the lip. All right? No, but that, this guy was on uh, infliximab, Remicade, and this actually turned out to be histoplasmosis. Okay, so sometimes it's not the obvious choice. Let's keep an open mind about what we're doing. Day eight, got our IF back. Positive for a possible connective tissue disease. Now, this is the real world. I promise this actually happened. We sent her to the rheumatologist the next day. Didn't have to wait two weeks. Really nice, really fortunate. Hey, Dr. Vasquez, can you uh, see this patient? He's really uncomfortable, and maybe it's a connective tissue disease. We're not too sure what's going on. Maybe her GI doctor thinks it might be Crohn's. He got her in, did pretty much the exact same labs we did. I think she got tested for hepatitis again. Uh, still negative. Then that was on a Friday. Then Monday, she got in to see her GI doc, and he said, nah, it's the Crohn's disease flaring up. Put her on Cipro, put her on Flagyl. Here's the uh, IF, yeah, positive direct immune fluorescence uh, findings, immune complex mediated vasculitis, possibly related to connective tissue disease. So we're, you know, we're trying, we're, we're doing the best we can, right? Okay, fourth visit, day 14, two weeks in. She's miserable again, comes in on crutches, okay? Rash, still spreading, ulcerating. She's seen four different people now over two weeks, nobody's helping. Nobody's doing anything that's making her life any better. Now she's on 80 milligrams of prednisone. She pushed, she pushed herself up, taking Flagyl twice a day, Cipro twice a day. We got a G6PD last week, and her now we got her on Dapsone twice a day. You can see where we did the original biopsy. It kind of healed. Now this thing is going lower. Bigger lesion over there on the other foot new stuff on her feet, not happy. So we called the rheumatologist, said, hey man, she's up at 80 milligrams. Is this connective tissue, you know, are you sure? He said, no, 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 maybe it's the prednisone doesn't work for her, we need to bypass the liver metabolism, let's put her on methylprednisolone. So we called her PCP and said, hey, she's, she's on crutches now. Is there anything that you think we can do? Can you like do an x-ray just to make sure? Because I don't, you know, I don't see so much of a problem around her ankle, but it's really, really painful for her. He said, yeah, 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 I don't know about that Medrol, but I do have one idea. Now, he was a PA. Yay, right? Can't start a party without PA. Isn't that what he said? I love that. <clears throat> Who had been in the Air Force for 20, 20 years, uh, now working another 17 in his community down in Palestine, Texas. He remembered he had this one other case a long time ago, far, far away in California, which if you're in Texas, California is a long way away, right? He had this guy that had similar problems, similar issues. When he was out on maneuvers for four months, he had been getting these weird rashes, lots of joint pain, going to the corpsman, and the corpsman was just giving him Advil, giving him prednisone, nothing was really helping him. But then he came back and he had one other symptom. Now, hang on, before you say it, because I know you all, you all know what this is. Okay? I'm going to prove it. The stars at night are big and bright. <laughs> Boom. Or, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Come on. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. <laughs> Woohoo! That's right. It's the clap. <laughs> uh, what is it? Uh, I'm surrounded. 
See, Dr. Rosen, I told you this was right up your alley, wasn't it? So from the Greek word, now this is, this is the best. Okay, I just ruined clapping for you forever. I apologize. There will be no more applause in your future because from the Greek word gonos means seed and rhea meaning flow. So, no, 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 this is not an infection. This is an imbalance of the humors. We've got too much kala. We're a little sanguine. we got some bile over here, right? Now, so if you have a chronic discharge that you believe to be ejaculatory fluid, which you would think, hey, that'd be great. But it's not always great. This one hurts. So what do you do? This is before baseball. You can't think about sports to try to get it to quit, right? Some people are getting that. All right. You slap a book on it, or you clap it really hard to try to get rid of it. And that's where you get the word clap from. Oh, that's it? Really? I thought there'd be some more oohs or yucks. No, it's just sinking in. Okay, sorry. Never clap again. There was another possible reason. Uh, there was some French brothels and claporias or something like that. But that's not as fun to think about as slapping it. So, red balls, gram-negative diplococcus. But what happened? Everybody remembers this, right? We were on a break. So it turns out four months before, yes, okay, there's some delay. So four months before, her and her husband took a break, and he went out and had his nice little relationship, but then uh, they joined back together, and uh, he was asymptomatic, didn't know he had passed this on, Ross style. So disseminated gonococcal infection, DGI. All right, we should never miss it. We've all seen it, okay? It's all been burned into our brains. And, well, I'll get it. So, occurs in 0.5 to 3% of patients infected with gonorrhea. Most are younger than age of 40, although it can occur in any age group, usually more frequently in women. Causing meningitis, septic shock, and death, virtually rare to unknown from the CDC here. Only 20 cases reported between 22 and 1972. So um, that's old data, but I couldn't find anything more recent. Uh, her BCP, okay, good Air Force guy, started her. Now, the CDC does recommend hospitalizing these patients. He didn't, okay? I, you know, that's his choice. Uh, one gram of rocephin, ceftriaxone, every 24 hours for seven days. Uh, you, you want to treat like two days past symptoms or resolved. He also gave her the gram of uh, zithromycin to make sure she didn't have chlamydia. I like to know where that word came from too. Repeated cervical swabs at day seven, they were negative, treated her husband, okay, and he was positive, so he got treatment also. And they had a little uh, urgent care clinic, so they actually went in on like Saturday and Sunday and got the shot. That's a, that's a big shot if you think about it. I mean, one gram, what is it, 250 milligrams for just regular gonorrhea? So I wanted to put this up here. Um, first off, Crohn's disease should present with granulomas, okay, on the biopsy. Uh, that's why these anti-TNFs, they bust up the granulomas. That's why they're beneficial for Crohn's. We saw leukocytoclastic vasculitis. Okay. If you uh, notice, there's also a C addendum. After we figured it out, the pathologist, Dr. Brad Graham there, was like, okay, hang on, I gotta see if I can, if I can find this. But it's very, very difficult. It's, uh, it's you know, very difficult to find the active organisms in these, uh, in these lesions. Um, he went under, uh, under oil immersion and looked for it and couldn't, couldn't see any. So, disseminated gonococcal infection. The couple's still together today. They're both okay. And they lived happily ever 
after. Thank you very much. Just to remind everyone, and we'll look, do some questions here as soon as they appear, but just to remind everyone, uh, gonorrhea along with syphilis are flourishing in the United States today. We are now at levels we haven't seen since the 1990s. About 80% of states had increase in their gonorrhea levels, rates per 100,000, and 74% of states had increase in their syphilis rates. That included Utah. I mean, Utah, they have no illnesses in Utah. But, so, just so you're aware, these things have not gone away. And it used to be that we were called dermatology and syphilology. So, if you don't know it, obviously the rheumatologist didn't know it. PCP kind of like figured it out at the end, uh, but don't forget these diseases are very much alive and well. Okay, you can do your... <laughs> How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Oh, and I want to make one more comment. The youngest person, I don't see kids usually, but I was sent one for obvious reasons, but the youngest person I've ever personally hospitalized as an adult medical dermatologist was a nine-year-old who had gonococcemia, disseminated gonococcal infection, who was having sex with her 15-year-old boyfriend. It happens. Age, young and old, is not a disqualification for sex or sexually transmitted disease. That's my last comment on that. Okay, here's one for Alan, CTCL. Do you recommend flow cytometry for all new CTCL patients? We obtain, we obtain this at baseline in our clinic on all new patients with the diagnosis of CTCL. Uh, of course, the vast majority of early stage patients are negative, but one in about 200 stage 1A patients, T1 stage patients, will have an abnormal flow cytometry. So you can be fooled, and you need to follow that carefully. For the other patients who are negative, if they are improving clinically, you do not need to repeat it on a regular basis unless you are concerned with some issue surrounding possible progression of disease. And this leads to the second question. Um, uh, we send a lavender top tube to our flow lab, which is a citrated tube, uh, and it's not on serum or skin, but it's on uh, a lavender top tube of blood. And uh, unfortunately, so many commercial labs do not do the proper flow studies. So if you really would like this done, you need to try to develop some relationship with a center that sees lots of these patients wherever you are, 
Uh, there are usually academic centers that have the appropriate setup to perform flow cytometry on the peripheral blood. Go ahead and take the next two. They're uh, both for you. Treating parapsoriasis or precursor CTCL. Uh, well, I, I often do use topical steroids, occasionally need topical chemotherapy, and occasionally even need uh, narrowband UVB. Uh, but, uh, and I follow these patients on a regular basis because some of them will have some slow progression of their disease, patients that are initially called parasoriasis. So you need to keep an eye on them. But uh, 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 in terms of the three potential therapies that I mentioned, you, you, you can try any of those. Uh, and uh, see if you agree with this statement. You know, there are lots of things that are called parasoriasis. You know, there's digitate dermatosis and other things. The, the ones I think you worry the most about are these large, scaly, macular, sometimes minimally elevated patch and plaques, but mostly patchy on the buttocks and the upper thighs. Those are the ones that sometimes suprapubic skin too. Those are the ones that, to me, most often eventuate into full-blown CTCL. Would you, would you agree with that? Uh, I would agree with that. You have to have a very high index of suspicion, and they need to be followed on a regular basis. Okay, go uh, ahead and take the next one. Uh, well, we, 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 many of our patients come from many hours away, and we like to partner with people uh, outside of our center uh, but again, we're very possessive in the sense that uh, we understand the therapeutic choices that are out there, uh, and we like to work closely with, uh, with the practitioner in the private setting uh, and, and make recommendations from time to time in terms of uh, ma maintenance of therapy or alteration of therapy. Um, and it's best to try to get an opinion on these patients because out in the community, obviously, they're rare, a rare finding, but we see hundreds of them in our clinic and feel very comfortable with their management, but we also feel very comfortable working with uh, a practitioner that's several hours away if they're willing. In our area, most practitioners do not want to treat CTCL, so they get a diagnosis on a, on a PATH report and they reflexively refer the patient in, and do, most of them do not want to see the patients again. The next three are all about home UV therapy. Is there a brand you recommend? Are they covered by insurance? And do any of your instructions differ? And there's another one down there, ordering home. So if you would just elaborate a little bit on home phototherapy, please. Sure. Uh, there's plenty of home phototherapy uh, companies out there, um, several, uh, you can use the Davalin, National Biological, um, there's two or three others, their Kernel Medical Equipment, and they usually have a small unit, uh, which is a handheld unit for people with very limited disease. They have a medium-sized unit, uh, which is good for, let's say, hands, uh, if you want to do both hands, if you want to do both feet, if you just want to do the face, hands and feet, it's about this big. And then I usually, the majority of the cases need the six-foot unit because 60% of my patients have active disease. So I not only want to treat the lesions I see, but I want to treat their normal skin because that's where next week's new lesion is going to come up, right? So I do use the six-foot unit a lot from these various companies. 
In terms of being covered by insurance, I have a letter that I write stating that uh, these patients have a lot of uh, difficulty coming in for phototherapy. They live far away. And also the money that the insurance company will save by buying this phototherapy unit rather than having the patient continue to get uh, phototherapy in the office. I do prefer to get phototherapy in the office at least for a couple months if possible so the patient gets used to the routine and we can show that it really is indeed working to the insurance company before we ask for the home uh, unit. Um, in terms of the instructions, it's still three times a week. It's very similar to the office. It's just that instead of standing in the middle of 40 bulbs, you stand in front of eight bulbs and you turn around and you do it again. And I have specific instructions I, I, uh, I give them. In terms of catalase, uh, the pseudocatalase, uh, that whole, that whole um, cycle came. It turned out to be not effective and it has gone. And no, no, none of us in vitiligo uh, specialists, specialty centers use pseudocatalase uh, anymore. Um, I've already told you about how to order home phototherapy. You have to just work with that company and you send it in and they have some nice people in their company who will get it submitted to the patient's insurance company. In terms of the clobetasol for the vitiligo, there is no like uh, magic number of duration. You're an expert in the skin. You look for telangiectasias. You look for hypertrichosis. You look for acne. You look for the side effects. Uh, the time I see thinning of the skin is usually on the hands and feet of children, sometimes on the, on the trunk of children, sometimes in adults as well. But usually if you're just using it once a day, five days a week, you can um, get away from those side effects. Yeah, one more quick comment. I'm going to just uh, dovetail on the home phototherapy units. I think it'll differ a little bit from state to state and insurance carrier to insurance carrier. Amit and I both practice in Texas. I have very little difficulty getting these approved. Now, you can't just, you call the company, but you're going to have to provide a letter. Either you have a form letter or you do one. And I usually send pictures with the mm -hmm. patient's permission. Mm -hmm because a picture is worth a thousand mm -hmm. words to someone who's sitting there at an insurance company adjudicating whether you can give these or not. But I have very little difficulty. And with a reasonably intelligent patient with written instructions, this can be accomplished at home. And it mm -hmm. really does save money and it saves time and effort. Mm -hmm. um, we've done the clobetasol. Mm -hmm. Can you go up and see? Can we get Dr. Pendia's print? <laughs> Everything should be uh, obtainable mm -hmm. through the app. There should be posted uh, pretty much everybody's talk. It's, in terms of the biopsy, it is usually not necessary to biopsy vitiligo uh, patients. Um, however, uh, as, as I talked about on Thursday, there are patients who have uh, sarcoidosis, who have mycosis fungoides, who have other diseases, and you just have to have an index suspicion. If it just doesn't look right, and you pull out your woods lamp and it doesn't fluoresce well like vitiligo, then you might want to do um, uh, a woods lamp. The vellus hair be being black, you can easily see that with your derm dermatoscope. You won't see it, by the way, just looking at the patient with your naked eye. You really need to take a look at areas where you think there's uh, where you can't see the hairs very well, or you think there's no hairs. Remember, the chest has one-eighth the number of hairs as the nose, and the back has one-fourth the number of hairs as the nose. So you have to really look with your dermatoscope those areas to see those black, um, black uh, vellus, vellus hairs. And, and we've gone over, so, uh, okay. but really quick, if you would admit, 
Zelgens, have you, it's of course off-label, have you, it looks very promising in what's yeah. been published, not approved. Have you used it for any severe yeah, cases? Zelgens is also called tofacitinib, a JAK inhibitor. You heard me talk about JAK blockage. I have tried to get patients on it. Um, it's extremely expensive, and I cannot get it approved. I haven't either. However, the, the new JAK inhibitor study is starting this month with the topical, and then there's going to be two more coming up for vitiligo. And then the last question, dexamethasone, how long do you do that Saturday-Sunday regimen, especially if they're not responding? How long do you give it until you if, say no? If a patient's not responding, I do it for three months. If they are responding, our mean duration of dexamethasone, looking back at a retrospective review of 100 patients, is 3.5 months. So if you see them at two months or three months and they're still having the confetti, trichrome, kebner, you can continue them for another two or three months as long as they're not having side effects, they're on vitamin D, they're on calcium, et cetera. Okay. Thank you all for listening to our panel. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.